Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born in Illinois, but grew up in Detroit. As a child, she mainly played basketball and was captain of her team and named All-City and All-State with plans of playing basketball in the Olympics, but her knees disagreed with that. After high school, she got involved in martial arts and in 1988 won gold medal in Seoul, Korea, as an Olympian again in 1992 and took home the bronze. In the mid-90s, she appeared on a TV show that many of my listeners are familiar with, WMAC Masters. She currently teaches at Andrew Air Force Base and Bowling Air Force Base, as well as some community rec programs. In her free time, she loves to travel with family and friends and play golf. Please welcome my guest today, Miss Lynette Love. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. I appreciate your time. So what we like to do at the very beginning, I want to jump into it and find out what, le- I mean, obviously I talked a little bit about it after high school, but what led to you getting involved in martial arts? Kind of what, where did that first spark come from that started your interest down that pathway? Uh, you know, it was the strangest thing because my goal initially was to play basketball Mm -hmm. and um through that process of realizing i didn't know if my knees would hold up and i don't even think it was that uh i don't think it was that up front for me i think it was just that i was in pain and i was going to go to college and so i needed to do something to stay in shape while i was in college and so i kind of figured out since i wouldn't be playing basketball because i didn't choose one of the colleges that were offering me a scholarship because that would have entailed me having to live on campus which i wasn't really excited about Mm -hmm. so i decided to go to um, a local school wayne state university and that way i could still live at home and um i just needed something to stay in shape and and i remember going past a martial arts school and there was this school that was probably a block long. I mean, it was a huge school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, let me go in there and see how everything's going. And, you know, I went in there, I talked to some people, I asked, could I watch a class? And, you know, I kind of got this feel like, well, until you join, you can't watch classes. And I thought that was kind of strange. Really? Okay. So I left there and then I went to this little small school, maybe uh, in the same area. And I did class for about a month. And I think the whole month, all I learned to do was punch. Okay. And I was kind of thinking, well, that wasn't fun. So I think I kind of gave up the search and just, you know, said, let me go to college. And I happened to go past the school. The door was open. It was a nice summer day. And I saw these people doing just everything, jump kicks and all of that. And I go, now that looks like fun. <laughs> and I went in there. And the instructor comes out. Now I'm six three. The instructor was about five one. <laughs> and he comes out and literally when you walk in, there's not really a lobby. There is maybe four feet before you're on the floor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just stood there watching and, and he said, um, you know, are you interested? I said, yeah, I think I want to try this. And he goes, well, why do you want to try it? And I didn't have an answer for that. I don't know. 
<laughs> looks kind of interesting. He said, okay, well, if you want to try, you know, just come back, bring $21. It was $21 a month, the okay. strangest amount. And um, <laughs> I think what I liked about it was that he wasn't pressuring me. He wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, because martial arts schools can be intimidating to come in for a child Definitely. or an adult, anybody, because, you know, you're looking at them do these things that, you know, you can't necessarily do right away. And um, I said, okay. And I just had this good, relaxed feeling. And I believe within a week I came back with $21. Nice. So before that, now, did you know anything at all about martial arts or kind of what was your experience? I mean, had you been watched martial arts movies or was it completely new to you? It was completely new to me. In fact, my school, I went to Cass Tech High mm -hmm. and my school was, they had all kinds of clubs, golf clubs, track clubs, every club, you could say swim clubs. And I was so busy playing basketball. None of those clubs interest me. I used to watch these guys in this martial arts club and they'd walk around barefoot and I guess go do whatever they do. Mm -hmm. And I, it kind of, it was like a cult to me. I was like, Oh, that looks kind of strange. They don't have any shoes on. What are they doing? You know? <laughs> so I didn't even, I wasn't even curious about it. Right. Like I could care less. It was probably if somebody had said, Oh, you should check that out. I probably said, no, I don't want to. <laughs> so then think about some of those first few classes. What are some things you remember? Some stuff you did in those first few classes? <sighs> I remember stretching, which was not my forte, <laughs> because when I played basketball, then all we did was run and jump. Now, basketball teams now, they do lots of stretching because they realize that they need to for their knees. Yep. But when I was playing, it was just running and jumping. So it was really hard on our knees. So we did lots of stretching. And I remember it was just not something that I could do well. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that everybody in there was, of course, much smaller than me, probably. I was the tallest one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but I didn't I didn't really feel awkward. And it wasn't a huge place where, you know, you just felt like you didn't belong. It was very welcoming. It seemed like everybody kind of said hi to you. And I think I saw I think there was two women that I saw. Okay. One was Asian, two women and maybe 25 guys. Wow. And the women were doing forms, but the guys were sparring. And I looked at the forms, I go, I'm not doing that. And I looked at the sparring, and I go, that looks like fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. And so, you know, of course, for the first three or four months, none of, you don't do any of that. You're just doing basic, learning basic kicks, learning right. basic punching and blocking. But eventually, I remember telling my instructor, I want to spar. And he said later on, the reason why he agreed was because I was so tall that he figured I would be okay. I wouldn't get hurt. Mm -hmm. So that was why he was like, okay, oh, sure. Yeah. I imagine that's got to be an advantage, especially with kicks being taller and having the longer legs. That's got to be nice. <laughs> well, I, you know what though? I don't think necessarily just with that, that it is because when you're tall, you're kicking long. So that means, yeah, you can keep somebody away, but you have to be fast enough to get those kicks off before they can get inside. Because once they're inside, now the disadvantage is on you because you can't kick short. Very true. So I learned that as I, you know, as I got better and better in martial arts, I realized that um, it wasn't just about being tall. I couldn't sit on that. Like mm -hmm. I had to develop some short kicking skills as well as some long kicking skills to be successful. So then at what, uh, what belt level did competition start for you? When, when was your first tournament? My first tournament was at Black Belt. So we had competitions within the school. And then my instructor oh. also taught at University of Maryland. Whenever we test, the test would be at University, not University of Maryland, University of Michigan. Okay. So whenever we test, we had to drive there. 
So that was my first ballot competition. That was the really? first time sparring with people I didn't know. Wow. That's, that's a long way to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And what I realized, our Detroit school, we were good at sparring. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that inner city mentality. But University of Michigan was really good at forms. And we were horrible at forms. I started to see that difference as we would go there to test. You know, when they said sparring, I would just light up. Okay, let's go. They said forms. I was like, uh, okay. Let me just do what I have to do so I can pass to the next belt. So competition as a black belt, my instructor, I remember he told me, I used to keep my uniform in the car all the time because I was at, I was, I was at that school six to seven days a week. I lived it. Once I got in there and realized how much I loved it, it became a really big part of me. And I remember my instructor said to me one day, he said, um, I need you to bring four of the guys to a competition that's going to be held in Akron, Ohio, four hours away. I was the only one that had a car. <laughs> okay. So he said, you know, can you bring my I said, sure. And uh, that morning, I got every excuse in the book. One guy said his mother wouldn't let him go. The other one said he broke his leg. The other one said, no, nah, I don't. I mean, it was, I was like, what? So I, you know, I, I kind of thought for a minute. I said, you know what? I better drive up there and let him know mm-hmm. that they don't want to come. I don't want him to think that it's because I didn't bring them. Right. And I think I was kind of curious too, like, the, you know, what is this about here? So I drove up there by myself. And I go in there and I said, Master Chung, you know, none of the guys came because, you know, they, they said they couldn't come or something happened. He goes, well, it's okay. He goes, why don't you change and compete? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> like, what in the world? I said, okay. I said, I, and you don't use a question your instructor. It was just like, okay, mm-hmm. let's do it. Yes, so I go and get my uniform out the car. And I go and compete, and it's women's heavyweight, which at that time was 157 and over. And because of my height, that I barely made that, you know, because I was tall and thin. Mm-hmm. And I competed, and I won. And his excitement was over the top. Like, you know, I just figured, okay, I, you know, I won, and I beat somebody, okay. But I later found out that that was the Nationals, and the girl I beat was the one that was on the national team the previous year. Oh, wow. He never told you that? Wow. He never told me that. So okay. he had me running around the gym like a lunatic. Like He was just like, just keep running, keep running. Because I, I guess I had another fight. I didn't know what was going on. I was just doing what he told me. And after the other fight, I won. And then they make this announcement that all first place winners will be going to China this year. And... <laughs> Before they would just pay for men, but they were paying for men and women. Okay. And wow. I was in shock. I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I was going to another country. So did he he ever tell you why he kept it a secret? Did he think maybe you'd get too nervous? He never said anything. Okay. I think he was just I think the shock of it all for him <laughs> was, you know, you know, and the excitement. He was just I think when we went back to the school, he was talking to the school and he goes, you know, sometimes things don't go as planned. He goes, you know, and then he said, you know, Lynette was there. She didn't have to come, but she came anyway to let me know that nobody else was coming and she competed and she won. And so that was his speech, you know, like sometimes you have to be ready just in case. What was it like going to China then for the first time? That was unreal because first my school decided to do a fundraiser because I had no money and I was like going to China and my mother was like, okay, we can get you to LA because they were paying for our flight from LA to China and back to LA. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, my mother's like, okay, we got to figure out how to get you to LA. My sister at the time was living in California. So my, my school raised about $300 for me to take so I'd have some money in my pocket. My mother got bus tickets for me round trip to LA and back. Oh, wow. And right, can you imagine? And she <laughs> yeah. figured my sisters being in LA could come back with me on the bus because I think we were having a family reunion right after that. So, I mean, I was so excited in 21, you know, a three-day trip is like... You know, you don't even you don't even know it's happening. Right. You know, you're just riding. I mean, the excitement of going there was so far past three days. I could care less. <laughs> and I remember going to China and, and I had braids in my hair because it was so hot. You know, I didn't want to have to do my hair. And I remember the Chinese girls coming up and feeling my hair <laughs> and just looking, standing with me with, because I was so tall. And it was just, I mean, the whole trip was amazing. Yeah. I, I learned so much just being there about just people in general. What an experience. So, so cool. So, so I have to ask, cause yeah. I'm, I'm also a Taekwondo practitioner. So uh-huh. what, which uh, style of Taekwondo, like which Kwan was it under, if you remember, and which forms did you guys do? Well, I was Kang Du Kwan okay. starting out. Now we're Olympic style now. Mm-hmm. All of that Kwan stuff is kind of the roots, but it doesn't really kind of describe the art anymore. Right. And I was under a World Taekwondo Federation. So we did then... When we were came to Kwan, we did like Basabe, No High, okay, different forms. I'm trying to think, came to Kwan, Chung Kwan, because my instructor was the the title of his school was Karate Kung Fu. Okay, so we were doing half Karate forms and half Kung Fu. Oh, nice, nice. And and I think everybody that as I was on the team longer trained with, everybody was coming from different style, Chung to Kwan, Mu to Kwan. Mm, yep. But eventually. It all became Olympic style Taekwondo and all the forms changed over to Taegu forms and Pogway forms. Yep. Yeah. My school does the Pogway forms. We've actually, we still, yeah. we still yeah. do them. We've never adopted the Taegu. Yeah. I'm not a fan of them. Uh, I've been uh, doing yeah, I'm not either, but I teach now. I teach <laughs> yep. my students the Taegu and the Pogway forms. So oh, you still teach the Pogway. They have to do, nice. yep. They have to do 16 forms. Nice. Okay. Make up a form. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I know. I've been doing the Pogway since 92 when I started. Yeah. My, my first school was actually um, Mudak on Tung Sudo when I was 10 back in okay. eight, back in yeah, 84 yeah. and then my Taekwondo school when I was first in we were I'm trying to remember because we switched I think we were first mm-hmm. we were Song Mukwan and then we switched to Chung Mukwan at one point okay there was some yep, yep, yep. political political stuff that happened and they switched Kwan's oh and everything, yeah but oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> and we still we do the Olympic style too but we still do the Paul Gay forms and we still do, yeah. it's, it's 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 a traditional school but we do the competitions and stuff too so so then how'd you do in China I won first place. Nice. And after that, I was hooked. I said, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. I mean, of course, not the Olympics because there was no Taekwondo in the Olympics, but right. I was like, I'm hooked. You know, I would. And so I came back, you know, you know what happens. You win a competition, you're like, ah, I'm afraid it's okay. You <laughs> yep. go to a local competition. I go to a karate competition. Now our sport was full contact. Mm-hmm. So you could kick and hit the person. That's how you score. Yep. I can go to a local competition and it's point. <laughs> a little I don't know anything about point. Yep. So I go in the competition. I'm fighting this girl that's probably five, three, five, four. And she gets close to me and gets points and beats me like five to one. <laughs> and I sit there and I ball. I'm like devastated. Like what the heck? I go back to my school and I'm talking to one of the instructors. He said, first of all, there are different martial arts. You cannot go from one style to the other and expect to do as well because the rules are different. He said, we don't punch to the face, but when you go to point, they can punch 
at the face. And if it's close enough, they're going to get a point. Mm -hmm. He said, so that's a lesson learned that you have to understand there are different styles. And if you want to be successful in martial arts, stay in one style. And that was the last time I went to a point competition. Okay. Yeah. So then at what point did you start hearing talk that uh, Taekwondo might be in the Olympics? Like how long was it when you first heard about it to when the official announcement came and, and you thought it was you know, okay, so going to be around? I started Taekwondo in 1975. I got my black belt in 1979. Okay. In 82, 83, I was getting frustrated because every year we'd go to nationals. I would win nationals, but every year they didn't necessarily have competition for women mm-hmm. anywhere. And, you know, I was getting frustrated, like, you know, every year the guys compete just like we do at nationals and they're always going somewhere, but there's not a whole lot of competition. Women. Little did I know it was because other countries didn't have women's teams. It wasn't USA because right. we had one and it took them time to build that up. I, you know, I went to my instructor, I said, you know, I think I'm a quit. I said, this isn't, you know, it's not fair. And my instructor says to me, if you quit, they won't change. If you stay, they have to. Nice. Most profound thing I've ever heard mm-hmm. in my life. That's cool. But the fact that he said that kind of made me look at it differently. The next year, I think he knew already that Taekwondo was going to be in the Olympics, but I think he wanted me to stay because I wanted to stay. So the next year in 84, I'm watching the Olympic Games in L.A. I forget who was on the medal stand, but I remember looking at this like seven inch TV in my mother's kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's on the stand and I'm sitting there in tears and I go, wow. I'd love to be on the medal stand one day, but Taekwondo's not the Olympics, so I know that's not going to happen. That next year, 1985, they announced it was going to be in the Olympics. Well, then I had a new plan. I go, well, I've been on the team all this time. There's no point in me quitting now. So I was ready. I felt like it was something with that, watching that medal ceremony that catapulted me into, I'll be there. And I just went head on. And I just said, I got to do this. And I think that was the same year I moved to New York because when I graduated from college, I graduated in speech and theater. Oh, cool. And lo and behold, I had no idea, like, why did I go to speech and theater? What is that going to help me with, you know? But I moved to New York to train with Elvin Amy Dance. I wanted to get some training there and I wanted to pursue my acting. But when I moved there and I realized I couldn't split my time between Taekwondo and theater and dance or any of that. I had to kind of stay on this Taekwondo thing. Mm -hmm. So my decision was made because I said, if I become a famous dancer, I'll just be a dancer in a company. And I said, if I become a gold medalist, they'll know my name. And that's how I decided I wanted to do Taekwondo full time. So I stopped all the dancing, stopped all of that and decided to train full on. And there was a really good friend of my instructor's who had a uh, gymnasium there in Jersey City. And he said, look, go there and train after you work every day. And that's what I did for the whole year I was there. I trained with him. Okay. But then plans changed because he had nobody for me to train with at that level. Mm-hmm. And so I had to get another plan. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed every Nationals out of the 16 team members, eight men and eight women that made the team, four of them were from Howard University. I go, that's got to be a place to train at because if you got those kind of odds, Mm -hmm. must be a lot of people there. So I talked to my instructor. He called Professor Young, who was running the Taekwondo program there, who's also running the judo program at Howard University. And he said, come on down. And lo and behold, I had no idea it was the mecca it was. I mean, he had people from Ivy Coast. He had people from Senegal. He had people from all over African countries and in America. There was on a bad day, there were 20 people training. Wow. And it just, I think it was the best time for me to go because I had already been winning and already been a top in that sport 
So it wasn't as intimidating. Had I walked in there as a white belt, oh, I would have turned around. <laughs> there was no mercy there. Like, you spar. And if you get hurt, they're like, well, go sit down because we're trying to train you. <laughs> and it was just, it was that diehard. And you fought. It was men and women training together, and you sparred them, and they sparred you, and they kicked you, and it hurt. <laughs> But you just stuck it out because if you could handle that, competition would be easy. Mm-hmm. And we train every evening. I go to Howard University and train for two or three hours. And on the weekends, you go to Professor Young's school. He had to take one school and we trained there. So there was no break. Wow. And every now and then I tried to, you know, oh, I'm sick. I don't feel well. And, you know, you get somebody call you go get up, get up. <laughs> we don't care. You got to go. So that was to me the second beginning of getting to that, that getting that competition level up so high that it was hard to kind of penetrate through. And then how long before the Olympics were the Olympic trials? How long of a span is that once they picked the team? Let's to- see, I moved, I moved here in 85 and started training with Howard. 88, May or June were the Olympic trial. Oh, that close to the Olympics? Wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because they wanted the best. They wanted to make sure you were still in shape. So the closer they put it, they knew you only had a short time. So once we had the trials, once we had the Olympic trials, and they might have been June or July, no, June, I believe, they gave us two weeks to go home and get our stuff and go to the Olympic training center. Wow, that's crazy. And then you had to stay there for about six weeks. And immediately we went on Korean time. So Korea is 12 hours difference mm-hmm. from Colorado. So we had to wake up <laughs> at 12 midnight. Jeez. Oh, and they would, the, the, the cafeteria would leave things that are refrigerated, like yogurts, milk, cold cereal, stuff like that, because the cafeteria was closed, but they knew we had to eat. So that was the way they would leave breakfast out for us. So they, we couldn't do hot breakfasts. Wow. And because I remember one time at midnight sitting there stretching, I go, what the heck am I doing? Like, I could be home <laughs> being a, like a normal person and I'm sitting <laughs> on this floor stretching. What the? But it was. I mean, it was like you were on this train and you didn't want to get off because it was just getting stronger and faster. Mm -hmm. And once we trained there for about six weeks, we flew to Korea before the Olympic Training Center opened and stayed at Yangsung Army Base and trained there for another month. Oh, wow. By the time we got to compete or by the time we went to the Olympic Village and we were the first group there because nobody else was there. It was like vacant. Mm -hmm. So... Everybody was really not by the time we passed. It was just a whole different thing. But when we competed, we remember we heard more Americans from the Army base than we did Koreans cheering for us. Nice. Because we had been there and made so many friends and, you know, just really had a good time. Yeah. So what was that? Just talk a little bit about that experience and the actual Olympic competition itself. You know, what some of the people you competed against and, what you know, what the yeah. le- level of competition was like. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, the opening ceremonies was the mind-blowing experience because I'm sitting there talking to Edwin Moses, who's been on the Olympics already twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just being there and looking at these people going, oh, my God, these are people that I see play all day. And I'm like, stand here. And you didn't want to say, can I have your autograph? Because you're like (laughs) on the same field, so to speak. You know, you're just admiring them. And and you got um, uh, Jackie Jonah Kersey. Oh, wow. And I remember she was sitting outside of the gates. And I go, aren't you Jackie Jordan Curse? She goes, and I go, how come you're not going inside? I lost my ID. I go, are you kidding me? They don't know who you are. <laughs> you know, but this is how tight security was at the Olympic Village. Wow. If you didn't have your credentials, you couldn't get in. That's crazy. And I mean, you you know, you're, yeah, you're there with, you, there's Flojo. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, 
that was mind blowing in itself. So when we get to the our competition, our we're the first four days. So the day of opening ceremonies, we had four people that were competing that day. They didn't go, they didn't walk in open ceremonies because it would have been too much. Mm-hmm. They had to compete that day. So they sat in the um audience in the stadium. But I couldn't have missed that because you know, it's your first opening ceremonies. You don't even know if you're gonna do that again. Yep. And competition, I mean, it was fierce because then our scoring was you had four corner referees and a center referee. The four corner referees have a piece of paper. They're writing points down as they see them. So if two referees have three points, one referee has one, and one referee has four, you get one point. Wow. All the referees, it, it, it was the majority. Of, it had to be where all referees had to agree on the point. So it, and it was very subjective because they're writing this down. Hell, they could make up anything. They give it to the referee. The referee looks at it, counts, and then tells them how many points to put up. Mm-hmm. So that in itself, I mean, we were used to it because every competition we went to, that's how they scored. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, you're in Korea. It's the Taekwondo is the first is being introduced there. And we know the politics already. So the first day we were able to get, I believe Arlene Lemus got a gold medal. Dana he. I'm not sure if she's second, but I know I know we came away with a gold and a bronze and maybe two golds that day. Very unexpected from Korea. Korea had no idea. So our Olympic coach competed in that same gymnasium when he was a competitor. Oh wow. His goal was to go back there and beat them at their own game. So the second day, I believe the second day was when I fought. And I think we got the women got two goals. Dana might have gotten the same day I did. And I got a goal. Now, the psychology of competing at the Olympic Games is unbelievable. It's way more than, I mean, you know, you watch the Olympics, I watch the Olympics, and I only know because I've been there. But what people see is nothing like what it is. Because first, when you get there, you know, each host country gets to do certain things. Mm -hmm. So they can change the game at any point, you know, not necessarily the rules, but kind of how the game is played. And so the first thing they did was, okay, well, you're heavyweight, so you have to wear a size five, chest protector. So the numbers are one, two, three, four, five, six. So the bigger or taller you are, the bigger the chest protector. So instead of you wear the chest protector that you feel comfortable with, because, you know, I have all legs, so mm-hmm. I don't really need a bigger chest protector because right. that just cuts my legs off. So they had already made the rule, you're heavyweight, you got to wear number five. Wow. So we're looking at them like, are you serious? What? And my instructor goes, Lynette, it's okay. Don't let them see you be bothered by this. So right before you're going out in the ring to fight, you go in this room that is probably the size of a large bathroom. You're in there with your coach, your competitors in there with their coach. Serious mind game because you mm-hmm. said you're going, there's no place else you can look <laughs> except for at your opponent. Who else are you going to look at? And you're in there. And so my first, I think my first match, I think I was totally out of my body. I don't remember a thing. All I remember is my instructor, who was the manager of the team then, coming by and punching me in the chest and going, wake up. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I burst out in tears. And I think the coach said, leave her alone or something like that. (laughs) I mean, because you just, the stage is too big. And so my first fight with this Mexico, and the score was 0-0, but I won because I attacked the most. So whenever there was a tie, the center referee decides based on the person who's most aggressive. Okay. The second match, 
it was with Germany. And Germany was, I fought her before. Her name was Ute Guster. <laughs> she was my height, but she was really fit. Okay. And I beat her, I think, 1-0. Now, of course, like I said, the way they write down scores, who knows what the score was, <laughs> really. But. Right. So the third fight was the final fight with Korea. Now, this is the match of the time. So we're in the room. My coach goes to in front of her and goes, too small, and comes back to me. And I'm thinking to myself, are you trying to get me killed? What in the hell? Are you, what, how did you just go up to her and say too small? I don't, I don't understand what's happening. So I'm like, oh, think, think about pressure. Okay, great. So I had fought her twice. I beat her at world championships. I was favored to win because I beat her at world championships the year before. And I also beat her at the 1985 world championships. But Korea was training, and, and my, my coach had told me, she's going to be training to do spin kicks because her goal is going to be to knock you out. That's the mm -hmm. only way she's going to win. So I want you to develop push kicks. So every time she gets ready to spin, you push her and she falls down. Because if they fall down, automatically it's a point. You can be subjective. If I push her and she kind of falls back but doesn't fall down, they can say, oh, I want the point. Mm -hmm. But if they hit the ground, there's no question. So okay. the whole time we were training, he had me train with our guy, our men's heavyweight. And I think one time I pushed Jimmy Kim down so hard he couldn't train for two days. <laughs> <laughs> and so my coach goes, oh, Lynette, good, very good. <laughs> so I think it was so ingrained in me. As soon as we got in the ring, first round, zero, zero. Second round, zero, zero. So now I already know what to do. She's going to be, because they're telling her, look, you're going to have to knock her out. That's the only way you're going to win this, knock her out. So she goes to spin kick, and I could just see it very clearly. And I did push kick, and I knocked her down. They had to give me the point. That's cool. Then, like about 30, within another minute, she does it again. I knocked her down. Now the score is 2-0. Now it's no question. I have about 10 seconds left. And I go, the worst thing I can do is stand there and let her knock me out. <laughs> so I just run around the ring like, I got 10 seconds. What you going to do? I mean, <laughs> I, can't, I can't lose this. And the match is over. And that's how I won. That's awesome. <laughs> but the press conference was something. Afterwards, you both go to the press conference. There's usually American mm -hmm. and Korean and, and whoever. There was nobody there. Really? There was nobody that showed up. I think because Korea was like, you know, Korea is this big country on saving face. And they were so devastated that they didn't even show up. Wow. And I remember the next day watching her, seeing her drag her suitcase out of the village. Because for them, second place, third place, that mm -hmm. was nothing. If you didn't win, you lost. That's right. how they felt. And that's one reason why they were so good. Mm -hmm. But our women's team ended up winning three goals. Um, one silver and I think two or three bronze. So we were first place for women. The men's team, Korean men, won seven out of eight medals. Oh, wow. Our heavyweight, who's Korean-American, won the gold. He was the only male that won the gold. That's crazy. Yeah. The man and that's pretty much in, in competitions. Whenever you go against Korea, you know, and I always said this, it's like when you go in the ring with Korea, you have to understand the score is 3-0. They're winning just when you walk in there. So if you don't knock them out or knock them down, you're not going to win because it's not set up that way. And the scoring is so subjective mm -hmm. that there's nothing you can do about it. Because one of our guys who got silver medal, we protested because he actually kicked Korea, I mean, out the ring like a couple of times. Wow. But they gave him nothing. 
that's not good. Yeah. So oh. that's how the politics has been up yeah. until 2000 when we got electronic scoring. So we got points on the Hogu where you kick on the Hogu, it automatically will score. Right. But prior to that, you could fight. And, and I, I think the generation up to 2000 were the probably physically the best athletes because we couldn't count on electronic scoring. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kick and you just kept kicking and you didn't stop kicking because you don't know if you're getting a point or not because right. you don't know to the end of the round. Yeah, because some of those systems are very not accurate. Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. So you, you did double kicks, spinning hook kicks, and everything we did scored one point. It didn't matter. If I knock somebody out, you say, I'm still going to get one point. Wow. But from 2000 up, you do a spinning kick, that's three points. If you mm-hmm. knock them down, that's four points. You do a back kick, that's four points. So the um, scoring is raised for the better kicks. And so now, you know, you want to do those kicks. Whereas before, I mean, whether I kicked in the body or the head, didn't matter. I'm only getting one point. So why go for the hard thing? Right. Yeah. I think I did uh, for, for judging tournaments, local tournaments, I think as a, as a corner judge, I did one tournament ever where he did it with the pencil and paper. I did a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of them with the flags, but right. I was never a fan of those because I don't like the stop points. I don't like yeah. you know, stopping yeah. from so yeah. And then we, I think we finally upgraded our system to electric at our tournament, probably about twenty, little over twenty years ago. Yeah, so a okay. little yeah. easier with the you yeah. just push the button. But like you said, it's you know still absolutely you have, to, you have to remember to push this button if it was a turning kick, and you know so it's <laughs> it's it's sometimes too the judges can make mistakes. You might only get one when you should have got absolutely. two, and unfortunately absolutely. there's no there's no easy way to. <laughs> Yeah, they all they can do is try to get better, but (laughs) that's it. That's it. So then after that, so what made you decide to to try to go back again in 92? Well, I had already said after 88, the experience was just so mind blowing that unless I lost nationally, I was definitely going back. So I never even planned on quitting after that because that was just such a high. And before 88 was over, I knew I was going back beside my coach and the coach. I think the hardest part was after 88, he came to us and said, I'm retiring. Oh, okay. And that, it made me kind of double take as the, do I really want to go back? Um, now the coach that was going to be the, uh, the, uh, Olympic coach was the guy that I trained with in New York. So I knew him well, but he wasn't my coach, you know? And so it was, it was a little heartbreak. It was bittersweet, but I said, no, I'm gonna stick it out until 92. And then I figured out now I would have gone to 96. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the point. So in 88, the day after competition, I turned what I turned 32. Okay. 96, I turned 36. 92, I'm sorry, I turned 36. So I was one of the older athletes Mm -hmm. because I had been training for like 10 years before the Olympics came around. Right. We probably had the oldest team because we had about four members that were in their late 20s, early 30s. Wow. And we didn't get into martial arts for the Olympics. We got into it just because we loved it. And then the Olympics happened to come and we were like, hey, let's just stay here. So, yeah, it was a little bit different. Whereas now, you know, your average athlete is anywhere from 16, 17 (laughs) to maybe 24, 25. Yeah, it's a little different. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And when we found out in 96, for whatever reason, America was not, going to have taekwondo they decided to bring in baseball mm-hmm. and i forget what the other sport was and then that just made my decision because i go well there's no way i'm going to 2000 yeah so I, I said well i guess i'm retiring so yeah 
and I think it was it was different. It was different. My body was feeling it a little bit more. In '88, you know, if you told me to fly, I could fly. '92, I was like, eh, I'm not doing that. I already know I could fly, so I don't need to do that. You know, nice. yeah, it was a little bit different. Nice. So then, to to back up a little, at what uh, at what level and 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 what when did teaching become something that you realized that you were you were good at and enjoyed and wanted to continue to do? Oh, I never wanted to teach. Oh, you did? Okay. I never wanted to teach. You know, I used to say that teaching, I used to say that teachers are people that didn't make it in their field, so they became teachers. That's what I used to say. Now, my mother was a teacher, mind you. Uh-huh. I don't know why I said that. But that's what I said. I was like, ah, oh, they, they couldn't be competitors. That's why they became teachers. Mm-hmm. I remember my instructor asked me to teach a self-defense class at the YWCA one year or one summer. I didn't really want to do that. I was like, who wants to do self-defense? You know, if they can't run, what's the point? How are you going to defend yourself? It was just, <laughs> it was totally against what I wanted to do. And I went there and I taught it for a summer and I was miserable. And I go, I'm not going to teach again. But after 88, you know, it was like a way to make money because for, for our sport, the only way to make money was to have a school. Mm-hmm. And so myself and Deborah Holloway, who was living here in D.C., had been living here all her life, who won a silver medal in 88, we were like, hey, let's open up a school. And we were able to get funding from Bank of America and open up a school and uh, did really well for probably about 10, eight, 10 years, really well. Okay. But the problem was... I remember I was going back to compete. So, you know, when you have a school, students come for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't there half the time because I was still competing. And it put a lot on Deborah Holloway, right. who last minute decided, hey, I think I'm going to come back and compete. So needless to say, the focus left from the school and kind of went back to competition. That's a hard thing to do when you started a business. Right. And we go back to 92 trials and Deborah Holloway goes out there. And and I think she had maybe taken a couple of years off. So she might have started training and realized, okay, I'm going to go back in 90, part of 90. She goes out there and gets knocked out. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. So everybody that I was on the team with in 88 goes back to compete to try to make the team again. Mm-hmm. And I notice nobody is winning. And I said, I hope I'm not the only one from the 88 team. Well, it turns out I ended up being for the winner. Now, for the men, it was different. We did have two of the guys, one that I trained with, that repeated. But for the women's team, I was the only returning one. And then there were three new ones. And for 92, competition got tougher because in 88, we took all of our divisions. Eight men and seven women because we had one guy's division that never placed at world championships. And that's how they decided who would represent. If you placed at world championships, that division, your division was there. If you didn't place a world championship, your division wasn't there. They would take another country. 92, they decided we're not going to take Ben Fly, Phantom, Feather, Light, uh, Welter, Middle, Heavy. We're going to take Ben Fly. It's going to now become one division. Phantom, Feather is going to now become one division. So instead of eight, there are four. So that meant all the competitors who were champions in their respective divisions had to go up or down wow. in order to qualify. So now you got a smaller playing field and you got probably more athletes because now this is the second Olympics and everybody's on board with it before. It was like, let's see how this works, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was it was crazy because we had, you know, unfortunately we had teammates fighting against each other because they're trying to get that spot. Dang. 
Yeah, I know because I also in about a year ago I interviewed uh, Herb Perez was on was a guest mm-hmm. on my show. So you're my you're my second uh, gold medalist I've had on the show, which is kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so so then thinking back, you started teaching. You had you had a school, and then obviously you went back to competition. And and since right. then you've you've started teaching again. What do you think's changed about your teaching style over the years? From oh well, from that first time when you hated it, didn't want to do it, to now. <laughs> Well, number one, I've been able to make a very good living teaching classes without a school. Um, I teach like at Andrews Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. I teach at Bowling Air Force Base. I teach at some after school programs. And um, when I first started teaching, I was trying to make everybody an Olympian. Okay, right. we'll go do 100 push ups. Let's go. All right, what are you talking about? You're tired. What? <laughs> Keep going. You know, and you look, you know, and I started wondering, like, why are people leaving? <laughs> <laughs> Then okay. I said, okay, you can't teach them. You're at a whole different level here. So I had to kind of dial that down and realize most of these people that come to do martial arts are never going to be competitors because they don't want to. They're coming because you're here and you're teaching them and they just want to have fun. Right. That was the hardest thing for me to do. But over the years, it's been easiest because, you know, I was still training teams. I had teams competing and I was taking junior teams and senior teams to competition after I competed for at least 20 years. And I got to the point where I just gave that to one of my black girls. I was like, oh, I can't go to another tournament. I can't do it. You know, I got to the point where I didn't even enjoy it anymore. I was, I had done it too much. I was burnt out. Okay. I've learned now that the joy now is I teach people that come back after college, after having families say hi. And, you know, they say how that experience helped them through college, helped them through life. And it's just I can see every day I see students get better, see students grow, become a better person. And that's really the joy for me of teaching where I didn't find joy in something like that before. Great answer. I like that. So what led to you appearing on some episodes of WMAC Masters? How did that come about? I think that was Herb Perez. I think they threw out some women's names and Herb Perez was like, you know, why don't you get Lynette Love? And that's how I ended up there. And that was a really, it was a really lonely time for me because when I went there, they had me come there for about two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. And the first week, they weren't ready to have me practice my scene and shoot my scene. So they you know, put me up in a hotel, gave me per diem. So I was like in Florida, in this hotel, not really doing anything. Oh, wow. In fact, I remember getting so bored that I called a friend of mine who lived like a five-hour drive away and said, look, why don't you come up here and stay for like, four or five days? <laughs> because I was like, you know, this is crazy. Then about maybe about two days after she got there, which is seven or eight days in, they decided to choreograph my scene. And so we practiced for about three or four days and then we filmed it for about two days. Okay. Yeah. I love that show. I mean, I was, I was, yeah. I was in my yeah. early, then, early remember, 20s. Um, so much fun. I think Hacking. Ha- yep. Hakeem Alston. Yep. Yeah, he, um, his wife was having a baby. Oh, wow. And okay. he, any, any minute he had to leave. And I guess they called and said, look, she's going to have a baby. So he had to leave. And so they were like, look, we need you to try on his costume. You're about the same size he is, same height. You know, <laughs> okay. that was so crazy. I was like, wow. okay, interesting. Yeah. That's funny. Okay. And what about yeah. I was, when I was when I was researching you for to to ask you to do this? I, I came upon this. It looks like it's a, a movie trying to get made called Soul USA. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a movie that's never gotten made. Okay. Basically, I want to say because the person that was writing it was uh, she went to Howard University. Mm-hmm. Uh, was very close to the story. 
And I think her letting go of the story became a problem. And, you know, I don't know much about writing, but I know that when you write something and you put it out there, sometimes people want to buy it from you and then they want to change the way they want, put the people they want in it. And I don't think she was willing to do that. And so that's why it still hasn't gotten made. Any hope at all that maybe it will? I don't think so. So just reading about it, because it's basically the story of the 88 Olympics, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just... But looks I think, really cool. Yeah, and I think had it been presented a different way, had some named someone got it, changed it a little bit, and picked it up, it could have been a story. And it doesn't mean that it won't be. Yeah. You know, it might take one of us writing it ourselves. Okay. I'll keep my fingers crossed because I think it'd be fun to Absolutely. see. Absolutely. I would definitely be there. So, so yeah. what advice would you give to someone who's thinking of getting involved in martial arts for the first time? They've never done it in their life, and they're just wondering what should they look for in a school? What should they look for in an instructor? Yeah. I think you look for a school and an instructor where they care. I believe that's how I started. If you're intimidated, that's normal. But if you go in there and they take the time to show you a little something and kind of show you around and you feel comfortable, like you get a good feeling, it's probably going to be a good school for you. You know, I would suggest initially not signing a long-term contract, how they have like those six weeks Mm -hmm. for 99. That's a good start because to go in and sign a long-term contract and you have it you're not really sure if that's a good fit is what a lot of people do. And then they end up trying to get out of something. Right. So I I think it has to feel good. And, and, you know, you want to see a couple of classes (laughs) and you want to feel good about them. Make sure they'll let you watch. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I had one like that when I lived in California in the nineties, I called a local school when I was trying to find a new school out there. And he's like, he's like, yeah, we don't, we don't allow spectators. What we teach is too secret. I'm like, what? Oh boy. I'm like, okay, yeah, never mind. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would be like, well, you should keep that a secret. Yeah, exactly. That's I don't want to, I don't want to know your secret. So. Yeah. Okay. yeah, absolutely. So what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan at all? You know what? I'm not. Okay. I have a lot of students of mine that have gone to MMA after doing take one, but I get it. I get the draw because mm-hmm. with full contact, the difference is you can do more things with MMA, close contact, far contact, right. rolls, grabs. I think it's very good realistically. You know, like I tell my students all the time, look, you know, we teach self-defense and that's realistic. But when you're doing these spinning hook kicks and all that, um, I'm not going to do that. You know, so I think, I mean, I'm a fan in terms of I like combat, combative sports, Mm -hmm. because I think they're very realistic and they'll, they're more realistic than Taekwondo, karate, stuff like that. Right. But I'm not a fan in terms of, you know, what they can do to your body. Okay. All right. So who are some names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Bruce Lee. Nice. Chuck Norris. Nice. Um... You know, I heard a lot about Bill Wallace, but I never really watched him really? as much. You know, I, mm-hmm. he was, I mean, he was for sure one of the top martial artists, but I was at that time, it was movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, I would go to the movie theater and watch Bruce Lee movie until they kicked me out. <laughs> we would mm-hmm. go to somebody's house and watch yeah. them over and over again. Mm-hmm. I was such a fan of Bruce Lee that I would turn my lights out, hang a rope on the light thing and practice kicking it in the dark. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I wanted to be Bruce Lee, period. You know, okay. I love the movies that they had. I like Cleopatra Jones, Christy Love. You know, mm-hmm. it was just, it was the fascination, I think, of the movies, probably because I was in theater yep. and the reality of the actual martial arts. But 
top, top, top was definitely Bruce Lee. I mean, it was just the person that I wanted to be, the, the fluidity in his kicks, the consistency in his power, the um, how he could be so nice, but so evil at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, yeah, I was definitely... 100% Bruce Lee. Yeah, that's, I think Bruce yeah. Lee and Chuck Norris are probably the two top answers yeah. for that question that I, when I ask it. Yeah. So, and Bill yeah. Bill Wallace has been mentioned quite a few. I've actually been lucky enough yeah. to meet Bill Wallace one time. And Super I think you know nice. why it wasn't such a, it wasn't, I mean, of course, he was a great athlete, yeah. great martial arts, but he was more a point fighter. Yeah. And yeah, because he, he I wasn't, wasn't in very into many that, movies. So. Yeah, that, that was it. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So in all your years of martial arts, I know Taekwondo has a lot of philosophies involved with it and stuff. So is there, is there one philosophy you've learned in all your time in martial arts that really stands out for you? Yeah, actually it's my philosophy. Okay. A saying I had, and I have it actually in a book. I can't even remember the name of the book now, but it was, if I can make you think I'm King Kong, I've won the match. Nice. Because okay. I learned early on, you know, cause I, you know, we give a spark somebody and and either they, you know, in local terms, they would say, look, we're going to make super, heavy, super heavyweight division and just give you a medal. And it was like devastating. Like, no, I came to fight. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then it would, you know, or it would be, you know, I would get ready to fight somebody and, and the girls I was going to fight would come up to me and look at me and, wow, you're tall. Oh, my gosh, you're <laughs> really tall. And at first it would bother me. And then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, well, wait a minute. If that bothers them, I've already won because they're already going to go out in the ring and be mm -hmm. afraid. Yep. And so I learned that that became an asset of mine. Nice. I like and it that. It saved me a lot of time. That's a cool saying. I like that. All yeah. right. I got a few fun questions to wrap it up. Do you have a okay. favorite martial arts book? No. Okay. Not I'm a, be writing one soon, but no. Okay. You're not, not a Bruce Lee Tao of Kundo fan? I mean, I would get Bruce Lee books all the time, okay. but I think I prefer his movies because I wasn't a reader. Oh, that's okay. Now, this one, this one, you might not have an answer for either. I mean, you kind of grew up in the in the seventies and eighties, so you might. But do you have right. a favorite martial arts video game? Were, were you ever a gamer? Never. Okay. I was never a gamer. <laughs> that's about yeah. half and half of my guests. A lot of them never played games, yeah. and some of them did. A few of them, a few yeah. of them have been in video games. <laughs> so right, right, absolutely, okay. absolutely. I wasn't a gamer at all. All right, th this one, you you obviously, you can't pick W. Macy Masters, but do you have a favorite martial arts TV show? Uh, it would have probably been, no, it's TV show, TV yep. show. Yep. No, because we've had many then. Oh, there's been a lot. You know, yeah. I was more, I mean, it was the movies for mm -hmm. me, so I didn't have, I mean, I remember, though, there was Cleopatra Jones, which was a TV show. Yep. I loved her. I did, I did, and I watched that faithfully. And I think the other one for me was, um, uh, what was it? Um, Hornet. Oh, Green Hornet, Bruce Lee. Okay. Yeah, nice. Green Hornet. That's yeah. a great one. No, I can't believe no one has said that yet. Yeah. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah. And I cool. used to watch that one, that one, um, Kung Fu with, uh. David Carradine, the old one? Yeah. Yep. That one's been answered a lot. That, that seems to be a lot of yeah. people's favorite show. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a good one. So have you ever watched the new Cobra Kai? You know what? I watched it a couple of times. Yeah. I watched it a couple of times, but I didn't get into it like a lot of people. But, you know, I'll tell you, um, 
one movie to me that was very close to out the way we train and the way the career chain trained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite movies of all times, best of the best. I, I was actually that, cause that's my next question. Favorite martial arts movie. Yeah. And I, and if you, yeah. if you didn't say that one, I was going to ask you what you thought of it. Cause it's one of my favorite no, movies. Best <laughs> of the best. When I watched the Koreans train in that movie, that's exactly how they train. Really? Okay. That's okay. it. That's exactly how they train. And it was, you know, it was just a, to watch that movie. It was so amazing. It just brought back so many memories because it's probably the one movie that was the closest to the way we did things because even for the U.S. team, we had a psychologist come in and we would be laying on the floor and they would talk to us really? so that we could get mentally prepared. I mean, it was such a good movie. We all actually had, had jackets from that movie. Really? That red and blue jacket. And I'm so mad because a lot of my teammates still have theirs. Oh. You know, I was one of those people that I just gave stuff away. Yep. Like crazy. Man. I have no idea where that jacket is. But Dude. yeah, the whole team had that jacket. That's awesome. Yeah, I actually just interviewed uh, uh, Simon Rhee about two months ago who played Dehan. Mm-hmm. So he was he was on my show and, and such such okay. good stories about that and, and talked, right. talked about the movie and stuff. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I watch it at least once a year. My 16-year-old daughter loves that wow. movie. We watch it together. Yeah. And, and there was a guy on the Korean team. I can't remember his Korean name, but we called him Cookie Monster. <laughs> This guy had won four world championships in a row. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was unbelievable. And I want to say in 88, he was fighting Turkey. And Turkey was really damn good. It was Mm -hmm. probably about three or four inches taller than him. And I don't know what happened between them. But in the end, I think he does an axe kick and knocks him out. And I was Uh, like, what the hell? Yeah. And I want to say our team captain also fought him. I think it was his first or second fight, and he got axe kicked by him. Oh wow! Axe kicks yeah. are brutal, man. If you if you if you can perfect yeah. that kick, man. It's, oh yeah. I, I was oh, never yeah. good that at it. That was my <laughs> one of my yo. Know, that was that was one of my go to because I would do spinning kick every now and then, and my instructor would say, "Lynette, don't okay. do spinning kick." <laughs> <laughs> My my friend was great at axe kicks. I could never. I was never. I never had the flexibility yeah. like him. But he could bring that leg up yeah. next to his head and just drop it down. Yeah. And just wow. And I didn't have to have that great flexibility <laughs> because I was so tall. Yep. So yeah. Nice. All right. Final question. Now this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie. Just in general. I know you said you like movies. So just do you have a right. favorite movie fight scene? Yes, Enter the Dragon. Ooh. Great. Okay. Enter the Dragon, the mirrors. Oh, I love that scene. So good. Yeah. Such a good scene. Yeah. That's one I, I, I really hope they never remake that movie. That's just so, yeah. so yeah. good. I, no, it can't be. It, I don't think they, you know, they can't remake anything that Bruce Lee was yeah. in because there's, you know, even, was it Jet Li? Jet Li? Jet Li, yeah. He's good, yeah. but he's, yeah, it's a different, and I, it's something about how Bruce Lee would do something mm-hmm. and then his face would tell what he was doing, even though you couldn't see what he yep. was doing, you know? i tell you what I would like <laughs> to see. It was almost like, I'm killing you, but I don't really <laughs> want to kill you, but you're making me kill you. Exactly. <laughs> I, I talked about this with another guest. I would love them to see, not re- not a remake, but I would like to see them take uh-huh. Game of Death and re- yeah. redo the scenes that they did after Bruce died, where they had that, like, paper cut out over the guy's face. Because they could do it with, like, yeah. CGI now and make that look really cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if they and ever, I would ever love for would. Kareem to be in it and just whatever, do some kind of cameo appearance. That'd, That'd be, be awesome. awesome. I love Kareem. Yeah. 
I, I'd love to get him on my show. I've, I've, I've sent a few yeah. requests, but never got a response, but he'd be, he'd be fun to chat yeah. with. But, but Lynette, I just had, this has been so much fun. I, I love you're great. Yeah. You are a great storyteller. Seriously. I, I, I you. when you were talking about the Olympics, I, I actually got chills. It was uh-huh. so cool. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I've enjoyed this so much and, and, uh, and I can't, yeah. can't wait for people to hear this episode. I'm, I'm super excited. We got to do this. Great. Great. Well, hopefully I can get this book out soon. So you'll be able to read it too. Definitely. Yeah. You let me know when it comes Absolutely. out and I'll, and I'll talk about it. I'll put a link for it in, with my podcast Sounds and stuff. Good. So did you have an ETA on when it might be coming out when you're hoping to get it out? No, I'm hoping to have it done by June of next year. Okay. And so once I do that and get a publisher, I'll be uh, good to go. Cool. Well, I will definitely keep an eye out for it and we'll promote the heck out Thank of it. You. So that sounds great. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.